So I'm Will Fenton, Director of Research and Public Programs at the Library Company of Philadelphia, Ben Franklin's old library, and today we are an independent research library with a terrific fellowship program. In fact, this particular series that you're tuning in for right now is sustained entirely by that fellowship program. Uh, it's been going for some, something like 34, 35 years. We've had more than 1,200 researchers come to the library company on a fellowship. And they've done all sorts of tremendous work, which we get to hear about all the time. It's been a real delight for me. This was certainly something that I started last April, seeking to sort of keep my brain from turning to mush over the course of the pandemic. And uh, it has certainly succeeded in that regard. And I'm, I'm very happy that all of you continue to join us. But tonight, we're going to welcome a former fellow and a terrific scholar, David Head, who is Associate Lecturer of History at the University of Central Florida. David received his BA from Niagara University and his PhD from the University of Buffalo, a bit of a climate change from UCF. He was a library company historical society of Pennsylvania fellow while researching his dissertation back in 2006. But his most recent book, A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy and the Fate of the American Revolution, the one that we're going to hear about tonight, received honorable mention for the Journal of American Revolution's 2020 Best Book Award. It was also a finalist for the 2020 George Washington Book Prize. So a lot of great acclaim there. In addition to his academic work, David has written for venues such as USA Today and the Orlando Sentinel on topics ranging from George Washington's shopping habits to the musical Hamilton. With that, let me turn it over to our esteemed guest, David. Well, thank you very much. Uh, and I want to express at the very beginning here, my thanks to Will for uh, hosting tonight's event and uh, to also to Deja for uh, doing such great work behind the scenes to get everything looking great. Uh, and thank you to all of you who are taking time out of your evening here to hear a little more about George Washington. So I'm going to be talking about an incident at uh, the end of the American Revolution. And the story that I tell in my book is really a story of how the American Revolution ended. Uh, it was kind of a uh, it was kind of a bitter ending in many ways. Uh, victory happened, independence was achieved, but many of the soldiers went home very angry about their experience in the army uh, uh, defending American liberty. And this is one example that I'll talk about, the Newburgh conspiracy that really lays bare many of the difficult circumstances at the end of the war. I want to give you a little bit of an overview of the, the situation in the last two years of the war when my story happens. And then I'll talk a little bit about uh, the events of the Newburgh conspiracy, or as the, I, I might uh, prefer to put it, the so-called uh, Newburgh conspiracy. You'll see why as we get towards the end. And then I'll explain a little bit about um, my opinion on whether it was a true conspiracy or not. And so that is the preview of where we're going to be going. So the end of the American Revolution, the last two years, is a strange period because the final battle, final major battle, as it turns out, was the Yorktown campaign, where the British surrender to the combined American and French forces uh, in late uh, October of 1781. So the British surrender. Can we get a huzzah from everyone? Okay. I, I'm sure that your houses were ringing with uh, enthusiastic huzzas for the victory over the British. But there's a lot more to go. The war itself, the treaty, the formal treaty ending the war, is not concluded in arriving in the United States until the fall of 1783, almost exactly three, uh, two years later 
after the victory at Yorktown. And of course, we know that that was the last major campaign. But the people living through that period didn't know that. They didn't know that the war was essentially over. They didn't know that there would be no more major fighting. And they had to prepare for the war to continue. George Washington, here in this uh, 19th century uh, uh, print here, uh, he has to remind people over and over again that the war is not over. He gets letters congratulating him, telling him this great victory over the British at Yorktown assures our independence and a new day is dawning in which our, our, our liberties will be more secure than ever. And Washington has to tell everybody, well, thank you very much and all that, but, but we don't have a peace treaty yet. The British are just as dangerous as they always had been. And Washington is certainly, uh, certainly right about that, right to be cautious. Even after the American victory at Yorktown, the British still occupy major American cities. They occupy Savannah, Georgia. They occupy Charleston, South Carolina. They occupy several uh, forts in the Great Lakes region. And most importantly, they still occupy New York City, which they had taken over in 1776. And actually the British would not give up uh, New York City until the uh, very end of the war, its very last days. So Washington is right to remind everybody, yes, this is a major victory, but no, the war is not over as 1781 turned to 1782. There is, though, in this period, so after the victory at Yorktown, a kind of relaxing of some of the urgency of fighting the war. And that relaxing of the urgency of fighting allows some other problems to come to the surface. Problems that had always been present during the American Revolution, but had been kind of pushed down uh, because there was always some crisis that had to be solved with fighting the war and keeping the army uh, ready to fight and all of that kind of thing. Now that that kind of pressure is released, these other problems can come to the surface. One of these long-term problems that's coming to the surface uh, in 1782, 1783, are the severe fiscal problems that the United States is facing. The cost of the war was far beyond what anybody had ever imagined. Uh, and the United States, uh, especially the Continental Congress, paid for the war in a number of ways. One of the ways that the Continental Congress uh, paid for the, this cost that was far beyond what anybody ever thought it would be was simply printing money. Uh, they printed uh, millions of, of dollars of these continental dollars. This is an example of a uh, continental dollar here. Uh, I like this one here. This is a $4 note and it has the patriotic wild boar. Uh, you'll ask yourselves, why is the wild boar patriotic? Because the wild boar uh, like to be left alone, would not go out looking for trouble. But if it were provoked, it would be ferocious in self-defense. And that was seen as kind of an allegory for America, the American colonies. They're happy to be left alone, but once provoked from the outside by the British, they would be ferocious defending themselves. Okay. So there you go. That's the, you, didn't, you never knew that the uh, uh, wild boar is such a patriotic animal. Uh, anyway, all, all this printing of money has the predictable uh, outcome. It leads to inflation. Uh, the Continental Congress stops printing these dollars uh, at the end of the 1770s because they simply become worthless. Uh, I mean, worse than worthless. They, they were ruining perfectly good blank paper by printing money on it. So think about that for a second. 
I mean, blank paper at least has the utility of being able to do all kinds of things with it. Uh, money with stuff printed all over it, that even though I like that handsome wild boar, you can't really do much with it once it has something printed on it. So they're ruining perfectly good blank paper by making it into money. Okay. The value had shrunk and shrunk and shrunk over time until dollars did not really buy very much. That concludes the special effects portion of the, uh, the talk tonight. Um, another thing that made, the, uh, one thing that made dealing with that, uh, the problem of inflation so difficult was that the Continental Congress, who made the decision to print all this currency and had the responsibility for paying uh, for the war effort, for much of the war effort, uh, had actually very little power to actually do anything. The structure of the government at the time was under the Articles of Confederation. The, Article, the Articles of Confederation are like the Constitution before the Constitution, uh, the kind of organizing document that the states, uh, the government operated under. And under the Articles of Confederation, the states were very powerful and Congress had very little ability to do anything itself. Congress would simply make resolutions recommending things to the states, like that the states pay their share of taxes to uh, you know, pay off their, the, the debts and to prop up the value of the currency that was being printed. And each and every state had an excuse why they could not pay. And they, and they also often felt aggrieved that their neighboring states were paying less than their fair share. Uh, sometimes the states actually had a good reason for feeling that way, such as when your major port and source of revenue was occupied by the British. And New York has a very good reason why they can't uh, pay the taxes at the level that Congress expects them, right? They're, they're, New York City is occupied by the British. Okay, so the Congress, Congress at this period is more like, kind of like the UN, a kind of body that facilitates cooperation among member states. Um, and it's kind of a diplomatic body in that way in which the various member states, they're still wary of each other. Uh, yes, they're fighting the revolution together, but how much do they really have in common? And what will last after the pressure of the war is over and they're independent? Uh, what's going to happen next? That's not exactly clear in the 1780s. So the ability of Congress to, to do anything, to compel the states to do anything, is limited. Now, meanwhile, with the army, the bulk of the Continental Army is stationed in this place here. This is upstate New York, uh, the, the uh, Hudson River, uh, Hudson Valley region. This is, this is a uh, painting from the time. It's a panorama. Uh, so it stretches far beyond the, uh, the confines of the screen here. And this was done by Pierre L'Enfant, uh, who designed, uh, later designed Washington, DC. So this is what the, the Hudson Valley region would have looked like where the army is encamped. There is a portion of the army is in South Carolina uh, under General Nathaniel Green, but most of the army is with General Washington in the New York's Hudson Valley. And that's where they go after the victory at Yorktown. This is Washington's headquarters in the city of Newburgh. Um, this it's, is a New York State historical site today. Okay, so that's Washington, where Washington has headquarters. This belonged to a Dutch family previously, and they, uh, the, the Washington kind of took it over. Uh, they gave the widow who was living there the option to stay and to share her house with Washington. But she told the officers who were, who were in charge of finding housing for the general, she said, the general and I cannot share the same roof. Okay. So she left and went to go live with her, her relatives, never enjoying the honor of uh, spending a night under the same roof 
as the father of her country. Uh, yeah, so that's Washington's headquarters. And you can visit there today like I did uh, several years ago. Most of the men in the army though are encamped a couple miles south of Newburgh in a town called New Windsor. And this is the New Windsor Cantonment. It is also a New York State historical site today. Uh, this is one of the log, uh, log huts, the log cabins that the men built for themselves to live in. Uh, this is a replica, however, it's not the original. Uh, the uh, Washington's house, this is the original. It's still standing, I mean, stone is still standing there. These are designed just to be temporary and they were torn down a long time ago. But then in the, I believe the 1960s, New York State uh, Park Service rebuilt it. Okay, so that is what they look like today. Now that, that doesn't look too bad to me, okay? Until you consider how many guys you'd be sharing it with. Uh, probably about a dozen guys would cram into one of these log huts here. And it's about a thousand square feet of living space with 11 other men whose hygiene habits are questionable, which I guess maybe is okay because your hygiene habits are probably uh, questionable too, but you're all cramped in there together. The army, the officers, the, the, the soldiers, they have a lot of time on their hands. Uh, over the winter of 1781, uh, 82. Then in 1782, there's not really much that they're doing. They're just kind of there in the Hudson Valley region, keeping an eye on the British in case the British decide to break out of New York City. Uh, and the British don't. The British are just kind of waiting for things to kind of wind down. So there's a whole lot of nothing. Then as 1782 goes into 1783, and it becomes more and more clear that a peace treaty is being negotiated and there's progress being made and that, you know, that the end is coming soon, that everyone can see this. The officers in particular start to wonder about their finances and what's going to become of them. The soldiers and the officers, no one had been paid regularly during the war. Uh, so they've been paid sporadically, but often it was in paper currency that depreciated in its value very quickly. So the guys start thinking, where is our pay? We want our back pay. Uh, you know, maybe in an emergency, they went without their pay because they were concentrating on fighting the war, but now they can see they're going to have to go home and they don't want to go home in rags with nothing to show for it. They want a future, a life after the war. Then the officers are also concerned about pensions that they had been promised. So at two points during the war, there was a wave of resignations among the officer corps. So the officers were resigning in large numbers. And one way that Congress got the officers to agree to stay in the army was by agreeing to pay them pensions for their service after the war. Uh, if the, the second pension uh, follows after Benedict Arnold's uh, his, uh, his, uh, treachery. So to prevent any more Arnold's out there, um, Congress promised the, the officers that they would get half pay for life. So whatever they retired on, their, their salary at that time, they would get half of that for the rest of their life. And that stops the resignations for a time being. Now, these pensions had never been, they haven't been paid either, um, which during the war, of course, are not going to be paid when the war is going on. But as the war starts to wind down, uh, the army is reduced in size to save money. And some of the officers are, they're, they're you know, they don't, the army doesn't need them anymore. So they're retired uh, and they're not getting their pensions because Congress has never set aside any fund of money to pay those pensions. And the officers start to see this, that there are some guys who are retiring and they're not getting their pensions. And they start to think, is that what's going to happen to us that we're going to retire and the money just won't be there? 
and Congress will say, sorry, guys, uh, we really appreciate you winning the war and our independence, but um, yeah, we don't have any money to pay you. They're afraid that that's what's going to happen. The officers organized themselves uh, at the end of 1782. And in December of 1782, they write a formal memorial to Congress, like a petition. And in this petition, the officers who are stationed uh, near, near Newburgh and New Windsor, they uh, write their grievances, a list of their grievances to the Congress. They talk about how much they've suffered. And they talk about what it's like not to have any money and any prospect of going home. How are they supposed to support their families? If they don't have any money, how are they supposed to pay off their debts that their, their families have borrowed lots of money to survive? And if the uh, officers are not married, how are they ever supposed to form a family? If you know, they're worthless deadbeats when they, when they, when they, when they, uh, when they leave the, the army. All of the officers consider themselves gentlemen. And to be a gentleman, you needed to act like a gentleman and dress like a gentleman and travel about town like a gentleman and have in, you know, dinner parties like a gentleman. And all of that costs money. Well, if they don't have the money from their army service, how are they supposed to show people that they are truly gentlemen? That's the kind of things that they're thinking of. In this document, you can, you can see here, uh, this is a copy of the Memorial to Congress. One of the key passages here is that the officers say to Congress, our distresses are now brought to a point. We have borne all that men can bear. We have expended our private fortunes, our, our, and we, our private fortunes are at, our, our private resources, I'm sorry, are at an end. And our friends are wearied out and disgusted with our incessant applications. They ask, most earnestly they say, that a fund of money be set aside to pay their pensions. Then they make a uh, reference to what might happen if there is no money forthcoming. And they say, the uneasiness of the soldiers for want of pay is great and dangerous. Any further experiments on their patients may have fatal effects. Now you notice there they say soldiers, not officers, but it's kind of a roundabout way of saying, without saying it, that the officers are really angry too. So it's a little indirect, but the message gets through nicely. Uh, by the way, this is the handwriting of Samuel Shaw, who was the, uh, an aide to uh, Henry Knox. And I, I like Samuel Shaw, he's, he's, a, he's a good, he, he has excellent handwriting. Uh, Henry Knox, though, had very poor handwriting. Uh, I, don't, I don't like him very much. Uh, I mean, his handwriting anyway. The uh, officers send a delegation to Philadelphia to deliver their, um, their memorial. And many of the politicians in Philadelphia, they agree with the, that the officers' demands are just, that they have suffered, that they deserve to have these pensions that they've been promised. Uh, the problem is that there's no money and they don't know how they're going to get money especially when the states control all the money. So they kind of wrangle back and forth uh, through January 1783 into February 1783, trying to figure out how you could possibly get the money to pay the army what it's asking for. Some officers grow impatient as March comes around. And um, there's an officer who comes from Philadelphia and he's kind of a key player here. We don't know exactly what he told his other officers, but whatever he told them, made them really angry and uh, kind of lost their patience. A group of these uh, officers, they gather uh, one night and they write a letter to their fellow officers, inviting them to meet 
uh, and to discuss together writing a stronger message to Congress. And this is the example here of uh, one copy of that letter. The letter was written by um, a uh, officer named uh, John Armstrong Jr. Uh, John Armstrong Jr. was an aide to General Horatio Gates. Horatio Gates was the second highest uh, ranking uh, officer in the, uh, the encampment at that time, second to, to Washington. And he wrote this letter calling on the officers to meet. And he tells them here, does change the milk and water style of your last memorial. Has anyone ever, ever had milk and water? That sounds disgusting, doesn't it? Uh, so I, I would change that too, if I had a milk and water. Uh, but change the milk and water style of your last memorial. Assume a bolder tone, decent but lively. Now that doesn't sound too bad, but he goes on to say that you should carry your appeal from the, from the justice to the fears of government. Okay? So to make them afraid of you, to play on what they're afraid of. And later on at the kind of key passage that gets cited a lot um, at the time and later um, as Armstrong going way too far, he reminds the army that they have alternatives is what he calls them. He says, you know, if peace should be declared, we don't have to go home. We can stay here in the field with our guns and dictate terms to Congress about how we will, will, will be dispersed. And then we'll get what we want while we're still together with all our weapons. If, uh, Armstrong says, Armstrong says, if the uh, war should continue, we don't have to fight it. We can just say, you guys are on your own. You don't want to pay us? Okay, fine, you fight the British. And then leave the uh, Congress and civilians just, you know, abandon them to their fate. Uh, so that is certainly part of Armstrong's letter also. He has a, a kind of um, more moderate tone here. No one could object to being, uh, you know, bold, but decent and lively. But uh, reminding them of their, of, their, uh, of their alternatives, that is mischievous to say the least. Here's a, a passage here that uh, concluding what uh, message the officer should send. He says, tell them, tell the officers, uh, tell, the, um, tell the army, or tell, tell Congress that the slightest mark of, in, of uh, indignation from Congress now, of indignity from Congress now, must operate like the grave and part you forever. Okay? So don't let us down or you guys are on your own. That message goes out uh, to the, the camp uh, early on a Monday morning in, uh, in uh, the, the middle of uh, start, starting to get to uh, the morning of March 10th, uh, 1783. Uh, one of the joys of doing historical research uh, very closely is that you get to learn the days of the week as they were in uh, March of 1783. Okay, so March 10th was a, was a Monday. Yes, that's very useful to know, right? Uh, when Washington hears about this, Oh boy, I would not have wanted to be the aide, the man who had to bring that news to Washington, that there's this anonymous letter circulating in camp calling the officers to meet outside the chain of command and possibly to threaten Congress. Yeah, that guy, yeah, hopefully Washington knew not to shoot the messenger, uh, but he certainly would have yelled at the messenger. According to one uh, uh, eyewitness of Washington's response, he simply said that Washington was amazingly agitated. If you know anything about George Washington, you know that he had a terrible temper. I mean, just an awful temper. He kept it mostly buttoned up. He was, he was very self-disciplined. But of course, you, you know this about angry people or you know, people who keep their emotions uh, in their tight wraps. When, it's, when, it's, when it bursts out, it really bursts out. 
So Washington had a tendency to explode. And that's what he did when he learned about that letter. Now, after he was done yelling, uh, I would not have wanted to be around the house at that point. Washington calmed himself down and he had a very effective response publicly. He presented things as if it was business as usual. Uh, he called on the officers not to meet. He forbid them from meeting on their own, but he gave them permission to meet under his direction. So he told them, you, know, you will meet on Saturday, March 15th, and you will discuss and maturely deliberate on the best response to make to Congress that will obtain the object that we all, uh, we all aim for, the pay and the pensions. Uh, so Washington kind of gave the message that there's not a big crisis, everything's under control. Um, you can meet and discuss these things maturely and deliberate on your response, cool yourselves off and everything will be fine. So very effective to kind of, you know, take down, take the pressure down a few notches while they're waiting, while they're kind of calm themselves down and then meet, not meet while everybody's agitated. The officers, they meet on that Saturday morning, March 15th, at this building here. This is what uh, some of the officers call the Temple of Virtue. It was really, that's a grandiose name for what was really a multi-use uh, multi facility. Uh, it's, kind of, it's a large open hall. Uh, this is what it looks like from the inside. Uh, outside there, go back here for a second. Uh, it's you know, made, made of, of logs there. Uh, and you could have uh, public gatherings. They would have chapel there on Sundays. You could have dances and events. You can see that there is some um, offices, uh, the doors at the end there, some office space there, there's some storage. Okay, so all that, all that kind of thing. Um, it's a multi-purpose there. Uh, the building had been recently constructed. So it just opened in February of 1783. It was kind of built just really to give the men something to do, uh, kind of a make work project. Washington was not as imaginative in the title that he called this building. He referred to it as the new building. Yeah, so you can see why some uh, more creative people called it the Temple of Virtue. When the officers would have met, uh, those benches would not have been there. I think that's the uh, State Park Service does that so they can have programs and things like that. So the men would have stood around. Uh, I'm also sorry to disappoint you, but if you see that fire, fire extinguisher at the uh, end of the building by the green door, yeah, that's not, uh, that's not truly 18th century either. So sorry about that. Uh, there's a dais there in the middle where you could have you know, your chapel services and speeches and that kind of thing. So the men gathered there on uh, March 15th in, and uh, at noon, the meeting started. And then there was an unannounced visitor. It is of course, General Washington. Washington had not said that he was going to be there and he seemed to lead people to believe that the officers would meet on their own. So he takes them by surprise and he walks in and I can just imagine his, you know, Washington's a big guy, um, you know, over six foot tall, over 200 pounds, kind of his boots, uh, you know, uh, you know, making their noise there, clomping on the, the way across the, uh, the wood floor there. The men are probably uh, silent there, shocked to see him. And he stands upon the dais there. Um, you know, he doesn't need the extra height, but it makes him look even more commanding. Um, and he gives a, an impassioned speech. He denounces, the, um, denounces this anonymous letter. He says that it's more likely that it came from someone in New York City, someone who is determined, a British, someone British from New York City, uh, someone who is determined to divide 
the army from the people that they serve. He asks the officers to trust him, to put their trust in him, to represent their needs to Congress, to not send a message on their own, but to go through him and he will take care of it. He tells the officers not to, to damage, do anything to damage their, their virtue, their sense of honor that they have maintained with such heroic uh, discipline throughout the war. The way that they've gained a reputation for military excellence and a love of liberty, he says, is unparalleled in the annals of, of war. So he's telling them all these compliments, trying to dissuade them from any path that would lead to their, ultimately to their humiliation, to humiliating the cause that they had all fought so hard for. Washington brought with him a document that he was going to offer as, as proof. Um, and it was a letter from a delegate to Congress from Virginia, a man named Joseph Jones. And Washington had received this letter a, a week or two, a week or so before. And it was kind of an update on what's going on in Philadelphia. Washington brought this letter with him as kind of evidence from Philadelphia that Congress was working on their problems, but that Congress simply moved slowly because all legislative bodies move slowly, and especially the Congress under the Articles of Confederation because they couldn't do very much on their own as it all depended on the states. So Washington ends his speech, and then he begins to read this letter, except there's a problem. He can't make out Jones's handwriting. Uh, Washington read his speech that he had written out in his own handwriting, which of course he knows very well, and he wrote it nice and large. Jones's handwriting was much smaller and less familiar, and he couldn't quite read what Jones had, uh, had written. So Washington pauses and he takes out his glasses from his coat. And I imagine here that there was, must have been some kind of a pause, kind of an awkward pause while Washington is putting on his glasses. If you take a look at those glasses, that are not, those are not like uh, glasses today, where you can kind of, you know, you can put them on and off and slip them on and off, it's no big deal. You have to kind of put the spring, you see the spring mechanism there. It doesn't help if I point at the screen here, does it? Um, uh, you see the kind of spring there, there, you have to kind of wrap them around your head and kind of get them in the right position so that you can kind of see the right way. Uh, my my three-year-old daughter wears glasses and they kind of look like this actually, um, except hers are a fashionable purple uh, for a little girl. And but they're round like that and there's a kind of band in the back and it's a real pain to get them on her. Um, probably because she runs away and fights, but uh, even when she's you know, calm about it, you still got to get them on the right position. Okay. That's what I think happened. There's this pause. And then while there's this pause, Washington may put everybody at ease. He says something to the effect of, you see, gentlemen, that I have grown, that I have not only grown gray, but also blind in your service. So this is the first time these officers would have seen Washington wearing glasses. He just started wearing his glasses the, the previous month. So unless you were with Washington headquarters, you'd never seen this. And it's a mark of Washington's vulnerability that he shares with these men that he has fought so hard alongside of them. And in that moment, Washington reads Jones's letter, but it almost doesn't matter because the men have seen this gesture and they break down in any hostility towards Washington uh, where his leadership, criticism of how he's handled relations with Congress, it all melts away. The off, uh, Washington ends his performance. He leaves the officers on their own to deliberate. They decide to denounce 
the anonymous letter as infamous, is what they say, and they pass a resolution asking Washington to intervene on their behalf with, uh, with the Continental Congress, which is what Washington does. And that breaks the, the crisis. The crisis has been averted. Now, that's what happened. What does this all mean and why did it happen? That's another question. A popular explanation of why the army came to this crisis has centered on a conspiracy, that the officers were brought to this kind of point of a crisis purposely by politicians in Philadelphia. This was an argument stated most forcefully by the historian Richard Cohn, writing in the early 1970s. And Cohn made the argument that these Philadelphia politicians, men like uh, Alexander Hamilton, who's a delegate from New York, and uh, Robert Morris, who was the uh, superintendent of finance and his assistant, Governor Morris, and some others, they all got together to kind of have a two-track plan to stir up the army. Uh, the first part of the plan was to agitate the army. And to do this, they would agitate uh, General Horatio Gates, kind of hold out the possibility for Gates that if he would lead some kind of uh, movement against Washington, that he could be in command of the army and push Washington aside. So, so that was track one, was to get the army all riled up and angry. The goal of that would be for Congress and the state legislatures to see how ang angry and dangerous the army was. Oh, you know, like, oh my goodness, Washington's been pushed aside. This is a terrible crisis. Supposedly, those Philadelphia politicians wanted a frightened Congress and state legislatures to then be willing to do anything, like pass more taxes, uh, give the central government more power over the states to prevent uh, the army from mutinying and rebelling. Now, supposing this explanation, according to Cohn, these Philadelphia conspirators did not actually want a mutiny or a coup to take place in the army. They just wanted civilian legislatures to be scared. So track two of the plan, supposedly according to Cohn, was a double cross. The Philadelphia politicians were going to double cross Gates so get him to kind of rebel, but then undercut him at the last moment. So supposedly in this view, Alexander Hamilton wrote a letter tipping off Washington so that he would know what was coming uh, with the goal of then Washington being able to crush any rebellion so that the whole situation would be scary, but not actually a mutiny or a coup. Okay, so that's kind of the strongest statement of a conspiracy being at the heart of the crisis that unfolded among the army. But this was done on purpose by Philadelphia politicians who threatened to replace um, Washington with Gates, but then to give Washington the, the power to crush the rebellion so that everybody would be nice and scared, but not actually rebelling. Okay, there's a lot of moving parts in there. Okay. Um, now, I, after looking at the evidence, I'll just, um, well, I'll kind of give away the, uh, the, the ending of the book, uh, is that I'm skeptical that there was actually any kind of conspiracy plan like that. First of all, I, I, you can see the, the, the intricacy of this plan, um, you know, and how that's supposed to all be pulled off flawlessly in order to work. Uh, you know, what if, supposedly Hamilton wrote this letter tipping off Washington that a coup was coming. But what if the, what if the letter doesn't get there? I mean, what if the, 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 the rider who takes it, uh, you know, what if he's beaten up by, by bandits or his horse dies or there's a snowstorm? Then everything would go very astray. Uh, so there's that thing there. But I think some more uh, positive evidence comes from a, a close, close look here at a couple of items. 
Gates's role in particular, I want to look at. So Gates's role is what I'd like to see here. I don't think Gates had any aspirations to displace Washington uh, in 1783. Certainly Gates was jealous of Washington and Washington's success. Gates had hoped to be commander in chief following his great victory at the Battle of Saratoga. But by the end of the war, I don't think that was in Gates's mind anymore. Um, part of the evidence that, that Cohn cites for believing that Gates was up to challenging Washington supposedly comes from a letter in which Washington was writing to Hamilton in early March, supposedly in which uh, Washington identified Gates by this kind of name, Old Levin. Okay? And here's the critical passage from Washington where supposedly he tells Hamilton that, you know, yeah, I know this Gates Old Levin is out to get me. Uh, Washington writes, if those ideas, um, meaning ideas where the army is unhappy about Washington's leadership, those Washington, those ideas which you have been informed are propagated in the army should be extensive, the source of which may be easily traced as the old leaven, it is said, for I have no proof of it, is again beginning to work under the mask of the most perfect dissimulation and apparent cordiality. So Cohn interpreted that reference to old leaven to be Washington saying, yeah, Gates is spreading these rumors about me, and I know, I know he's, he's trouble. Well, I, you know, look at this passage here, and it just kind of nagged at me. What, a, what, what is Old Levin? That's kind of a weird name for somebody. Um, what, is that, what does that mean? Okay. So I started, uh, you know, doing some advanced research called Googling, and I found that uh, Old Levin is actually a, a Bible reference that was common in the 18th century. So it's a reference from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, uh, verses 7 through 8, which is, says, St. Paul writes, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, even as you are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Okay. Um, it goes on. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Old leaven, then, meant old prejudices irrationally retained. It, it was a saying that when Washington here is not talking about a person, he's talking about the kind of spirit of gossip and backbiting that was so common in the army. Um, the kind of, um, you know, complaining that people did so easily, and especially where Washington was sometimes seen as too timid uh, to make a decision. That's what he's talking about, I think, not Gates in particular, but the kind of gossip that was so common in the army there, because that's what the phrase old leaven meant, a spirit of prejudice irrationally retained. Another document that I think is really, is really crucial here is that a letter from uh, Baron von Steuben to uh, Henry Knox. Von Steuben was in Philadelphia, where he talks about what um, a kind of plan being formed behind the scenes that I've come to call the expedient. Uh, this is a plan that it kind of ends up being exactly what really happens, uh, where Washington writes on behalf of the army. Von Steuben reports to Knox uh, that uh, in kind of the talking back behind the scenes, an expedient was proposed, for which I offered your consideration, that the, the army, the army is they there, supplicate Congress and the people to continue their subsistence until the necessary arrangements are made, so that, until they can figure out a solution to the army's problems about money. This demand ought to be made by the army through the commander in chief. So saying that there's some people in Philadelphia who would like to see Washington write to Congress asking Congress to keep the army in the field. And that ends up being very close to what happened. So not fomenting a rebellion, 
they're talking about ways for Washington to represent the army and keep everybody calm. Gates's mindset in this period, um, he is very much distracted from army affairs because his wife Elizabeth is sick and dying. Uh, she'd been very poorly in health for several months and he's always writing to her, to trying to get news from neighbors and it's never good. This is a letter he writes March 5th, so 10 days before the climactic events, where he says that he really wants to come home. He says, if I, I was set out immediately for home, where am I my own master? Okay. And he's looking forward to getting there as soon as he can. This is his home in Virginia, where uh, he and his wife live. And in fact, Elizabeth Gates does die shortly after uh, Gates, uh, Horatio Gates is able to arrive there and see her one last time. So that's what Gates has on his mind in that march is his wife's health not uh, pushing Washington aside. The true danger though, there was a true danger in this moment. Um, the true danger here is that conspiracy thinking can snowball out of control. Washington himself was a conspiracy theorist I and mean, he believed that there was something very mysterious in this business, he told Hamilton. He thought that something was being plotted from Philadelphia. So even if Washington, who's fairly cool in his, in his rhetoric and in his thinking, and certainly had command over the situation, even he thought that somebody was up to fomenting this. Okay. So you can see how rife the conspiracy thinking was at the time. And that is very hard to stop because conspiracy thinking doesn't admit of any kind of falsification. Everything is just more evidence that there's a conspiracy out there. The other major, da major danger at that uh, particular moment is that something could have easily gone wrong at that March 15th meeting. You know how this goes. You get one angry person complaining and all of a sudden the floodgates open and everybody starts complaining. And then they egg each other onward. Timothy Pickering, the quartermaster general wrote the night before the meeting to his wife, Rebecca. I think something that this very, that, that you know, gets it exactly right. He said, should rashness govern the proceedings, the consequences may be such as are dreadful, even an idea. God forbid the event should be so calamitous. That brings me to the end of my, uh, my talk here. Um, fortunately, no, the event was not calamitous, but it very well could have been. And that was the danger of the Newburgh conspiracy and the danger of what might have happened, but Washington was on the scene to bring things to a peaceful conclusion. I have my contact information here. If we don't get to your question tonight, I'd be happy to, uh, to answer it in one of these ways. If something comes to you uh, tonight as you're about to nod off, you think, oh no, I need to ask about Washington, uh, this doing this in March of whatever, um, you know, uh, please send that to me, and I'll be happy to to uh, to answer you. Thank you again for for being here. I look forward to continuing our conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, David. That was wonderful. Um, and clearly, folks are responding because we have a deluge of questions. So I'll do my best to get through them. I will forego my ceremonial question and give it right over to our first anonymous question. Uh, which has the battle for the Revolutionary War's soldiers' pay and pension reminds me of the challenges deployed military and reservists feel in getting fair compensation and pension assessments for their war and for their war injuries. Do you see any lasting effect this budget battle has had in the way our government or public evaluates their relationship with the military? Yes. So this certainly sets it sets a it's always present, right? That the, the the army doesn't quite feel that they're appreciated and civilians sometimes feel like the, the army, you know, you know we, we paid you, you know, what, what do you want? Um, so there's hard feelings that, that come out very, very often. It's very surprising how hard the feelings are in the 18th century. 
as far as the last, the lasting effects of this, I'm not sure that it has a lasting effect on kind of the budget battles you see today. I mean, like the context of the US military today with this trillion, I, mean, I don't know, it's a trillion dollars, it's whatever it's been, it's an enormous amount of money. Um, it's just such a different scale than the 18th century. Uh, when the United States is the major power, you know, in the world, it's so different context. What this uh, event does set the tone for, I think is very important, is civilian leadership over the military. Um, that, that is so important that in the United States, the military does not challenge the civilian leadership, even when they think the civilians are wrong. And if they do challenge civilian leadership, like um, thinking of uh, General MacArthur during the uh, Korean War, right, that is a big deal when that, that happens. So something that Washington really, really careful about and is, has lasting importance is that the civilians make the decision, ultimate decisions, not the army. And that's, that's really important. That's a great point. I wanna jump around a little bit just so everyone who's posed a question sort of gets one um, and then I'll circle back. So Michael Hag asks, after the Conway cabal and the battle of Camden, why did Washington allow Gates to be number two? And why did Congress support Gates as number two? Right, so right, so you think, well, why don't you let Gates anywhere close to the, the action? So he's been um, kind of, uh, he's been disgraced by his uh, skid skedaddling after the uh, Battle of Camden. He'd been fighting a court-martial for a while, but he still had his friends and supporters in Congress, and they wanted to see him end the war honorably. So he comes back uh, at the very end, I believe in 1782, to kind of have this post, it's, it's not ceremonial per se, but it's clear mm -hmm. he's not really going to do much. And it's to allow him to have to save face because he did. He has friends and supporters. and He did so, some excellent service at other points during the war. So let him be in the field when the war ends so he can end the war with honor. And, you know, Washington, Washington's willing to go along with that. I mean, what, what's he going to do? Make a big deal out of this and, and expend political capital fighting Gates to keep him away from power when he can just kind of keep him there in this place, give him some administrative work to do, keep an eye on him, um, and expend his political capital on other things like getting money for the for the troops. Mm -hmm. Well, that brings us to a question from Thomas Rogers, who asks, how were the military paid? How was gold bullion and foreign investment administered? Uh, so they're paid in a variety of ways, both in hard currency and in, um, in paper money. Uh, so paper money from the states, paper money from the Continental Congress. Uh, eventually, eventually they do get their pensions, but those are paid out in notes from the, from uh, Robert Morris hmm. so that are backed by Robert Morris's credit, uh, not the credit or anything from the U.S. government. Uh, so yeah, so just a lot of um, different kind of things that you kind of cobble together. Uh, of course, the, the 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 hard coin is what you really want. It doesn't yeah. lose its value. They do get a little bit of that, um, but uh, yeah, just kind of cobble again get together these different sources. It's it's really a mess. Yeah, and it, it sounds like in that answer you've sort of addressed a question from Craig from Craig Howell. So I'm going to move on to a question from Robert Wong, who uh, sort of follows in the same thread. Payment of, sol of, of soldiers was also done by land. Who got land? Uh, you know, for example, the common soldier and or officers, what, what determined the location of their land and how much land was determined for each soldier, whether it was based on rank, length of service, et cetera? Uh, yes, all of those things. It's, it's a, this is another mess. Uh, the land, I believe the land was done, so, so these are land bounties. So, so the, the bounties are, are paid to soldiers 
as an inducement to serve, right? So you, if you make it through the, your term of service, you'll have so much land uh, after the war. And if you, of course, if you're poor and landless, this is your chance to get some land if you live through the, uh, to being a soldier. Uh, that all depends on num numerous local factors, like what state you're in, yeah. uh, when some states are more generous than others, when you, um, when you signed up. Some states are more desperate at, other, at one point versus another, so they, they give offer more land uh, when they're especially desperate to meet their quotas for um, enrolling soldiers. Uh, yeah, so all those things play a role. Uh, in determining what you get, where you get it, when you get it, all those kinds of things. It's a big, it, it varies tremendously from place to place. Some of my favorite soldiers though, are the ones who cheat in the system. There's actually a, a kind of fraud that was very common. I don't know how common, but, but the officers are on guard for this all the time, is uh, recruiting officers, is guys who would sign up, get the bounty, desert, sign up again in another town. You, you could do this multiple times because you, you, know, you know social security number or anything like that. So you, you could get multiple bounties if you, uh, if you were bold enough to do that kind of thing. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so yes, the land, land does happen, but it's enormously complicated and depends on a, a whole bunch of local factors. I'm noticing that uh, messiness is something of a through line here. Mm -hmm. So we have a question from another anonymous attendee um, about how many officers were involved in, that is in this conspiracy. Were they mostly the higher ranking officers such as colonels and generals or lower ranking officers or were all ranks involved? Well, I think that I, I don't know that there was, you can speak of it as a conspiracy with a definable membership. There was a group of about, I think about a dozen or so guys who got together with John Armstrong Jr. and wrote the letter. Um, Armstrong Jr., he wrote, he, he wrote the letter, but certainly there are other guys there meeting and talking about this and saying, yes, let's do this. And other people copied the letter and distributed it. There's probably about a dozen or so, maybe up to 20, um, who were present at that particular meeting. And those are certainly the ones who are pushing forward for that meeting. Uh, how widely was the sentiments in the letter adopted? Uh, in those few days after it appeared in camp. That, that's hard to say, of course, because these guys, you know, they, they talk to each other about it. They don't necessarily write to other people about that. And certainly I haven't, you know, find a lot of good evidence for what the reaction was afterwards. You tend to see people uh, who are sort of Washington partisans saying, yes, this is just a mi minority of officers. Uh, we're going to crush this kind of thing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, Knox, I think, in particular, is not particularly. Knox is nervous about this. Hmm. Um, he's not so sure that it's going to be easily crushed. I think one piece of evidence that I think is significant is that Armstrong writes a second letter, um, basically justifying himself and defending himself. Uh, and we don't, we don't have the other side what people are saying about him, but based on the kinds of things he's touchy about, like he's he defends himself at length that he wrote anonymously. So I'm suspecting the other, other officers were saying, what is this anonymous stuff? Why don't you just stand up and say who you are? Mm -hmm. And a number of other criticisms like that, which suggests to me that he didn't get universal praise that he expected amongst the other officers, that there was significant pushback. Mm -hmm. Of course, it's impossible to say. And of course, once you get in that meeting in that room and people start complaining, you know, you, you know what people are, their emotions get the better of them very easily. I have another anonymous question. Can you explain why New Windsor and Newburgh was, were chosen for the site of the cantonment? Uh, 
they were, uh, so the whole point of being located there is they are uh, outside of New York City to keep an eye on the British if they decide to break out. Uh, the question is, why not someplace else in the Hudson River Valley there? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there were very strategic, um, you know, uh, advantage of geography. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know in particular why that particular spot, not someplace else, um, is north of um, West Point, where the major um, uh, fort was at that particular time. So I, I suppose, in general, it's far enough outside of Washington that you can be supplied and maneuver freely, but mm -hmm. close enough that if the British start to move out of Washington, you could be there fairly quickly to oppose them. Another question from Michael Hag. When was the first wave of officer resignations? Yes, I don't remember, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I don't remember the- After it's the in the name. book, right? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right? You gotta look at, I think you gotta look it up. He's just, what is, there's some things, when you, write, when you write a book, there's some things you do a lot and just cannot remember one exactly it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember when the earlier uh, wave of, of resignations was. Uh, the other one followed uh, Benedict Arnold's uh, pretty closely around, around the same time. Um, not, not, followed, not followed Arnold, but around the same time, um, there was a concern about those, um, those officers leaving the, uh, the army. But no, I'd have to look that up. I can't, I can't remember. Another question from Robert Wong, who um, writes, I understand that Knox initially supported the officers, but then changed his mind to support Washington. Can you comment about that? Yeah, I don't know that there's good evidence for what, um, for, for Knox supporting, I, I guess by the officers, the, the question means the, the officers who are angry like, um, like Armstrong, like John Armstrong Jr. have supporting some kind of movement against Washington. Um, I don't know there's good evidence for that. And, and honestly, I think that Knox is such, is so closely joined to Washington. I don't, I don't really see him kind of taking a stand that would have put him sideways of Washington, yeah. uh, certainly not publicly. Uh, there could have been something they discussed privately, but but he's not going to to publicly question the leadership of of the commander in chief. That's just not how uh, how Knox operates. They, they, he's very close to Washington, yeah. um, so I, I don't know that that's. I think that's one of the things that maybe Cohen emphasizes that there was friction between them, but I don't see really the evidence for it in in what I've read. Um, well, I think Washington really wants uh, Knox's advice on this um, and they're kind of working, working on this together. So that, that's, that's how I read it. Mm -hmm. Let's see if we can slip one last question in before okay, great. the hour. Uh, Thomas Rogers asked, do you know how much the Revolutionary War costed? Uh, no, <laughs> a lot. Uh, there's a wonderful book um, called the, the, the Power of the Purse. Uh, e. James Ferguson, I believe is the author. It's from 1960 something. It's a financial history of the American Revolution, and to my mind, it's never been topped. Uh, just a, it's just amazing to consider what this guy did, calculating all kinds of costs and financing the revolution without Excel. I mean, it's really, I mean, without it's just amazing stuff. So I'm sure he has uh, charts and tables and that kind of thing. Uh, there's another officer, there's another author more recently, uh, an economist. Um, uh, I don't remember his name. I said Patrick something, I believe. Uh, but he also has some great work on that. And I have the citations in the book, but um, so I don't know offhand, but uh, there are other people who have worked on that kind of question. It is very suspicious though. I know that there is a final accounting done and it comes to a figure that's down to the penny. And I have no idea how you get that with any accuracy. 
right? What do they say about uh, statistics or, or numbers? The, the more specific the number, the more general the lie. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll leave it at that. All right, well, um, stay tuned for an email within the next week that will include a recording of this, just in case you wanna review it or share it with any friends or colleagues, as well as a link to purchase this wonderful book by David Head, A Crisis of Peace, George Washington, The Newburgh Conspiracy and the Faith of the American Revolution. David, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.